This is ContraZoom, a live in limbo production. This is ContraZoom, where we go back and forth about film. I'm Dakota Arsenault. And I am Andreas Babilakis. All right, I guess I should start off first by apologizing for two different things. First, you know, we we were definitely sort of slacking with having new episodes. We we had a new one come out just recently in, in memory of Gene Wilder. But other than that, it had been a little while. It had been, I think, over a month, which is not really our intention. So first off, I apologize. And second off, I have to apologize to you, Andreas, because uh, I actually lost the second half of our last Best Picture episode, and it never went up. I don't know if you noticed that. Uh, yeah, I was kind of wondering, but okay, that, that was a thing then, okay. Yeah, yeah, I lost, I, we, I recorded it not on my usual laptop, I recorded it on my desktop, and I guess it must have, I accidentally deleted it, or something like that, and I couldn't even make a post about the ratings for the films, because they were written down on paper, I believe you had handed me yours on a post-it note, and I think I just jotted mine down next to it, and I lost it, so I had no ratings that I could even do a post about it, so you know, uh, mea culpa, this one is totally on me, uh, and I promise I will not lose the second episode for this this time. No, especially because this one could be, uh, you know, this era could be our toughest yet. I mean, we had some real winners with this one. So, yeah, let's hope this one goes as smoothly and it's all good. We can only go for it from here. I think as a, a nice little preamble about this decade, you know, we're talking about um, starting in 1968 and going up to 1977. So you're, you're really at the, the start of uh, what was considered class not not classic hollywood uh new hollywood which are now classics to us um when you had a totally different new exciting vibrant scene that was going on in the american film landscape that they were just completely throwing out the conventions and and really learning from their european counterparts i think anyone that really knows their stuff about film history um is already well aware of this, but it's, it's kind of nice to see where, you know, there's a, there's a couple of the movies that, cu- that come out at the end, the tail end of the sixties that sort of still reflect that old studio system and studio feel. And then starting in the beginning of the seventies, there was a marked difference in the way these movies look and feel and the subjects that they're touching upon. And it's just so fascinating. This was definitely probably one of the hardest and closest decades for me so far. You know, I had eight movies where, you know, you could flip a coin and rearrange them and you can legitimately make an argument for, for the rearrangement. Yeah. Uh, there's only, uh, I am in total agreement with you. There's only two where it's like, okay, uh, Definitely at the bottom, uh, especially for one. One you could argue has some sort of a merit, which we'll go into. But the 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 rest of the eight, I mean, are considered classics in all sorts of different lists and academic sources. Like every single one has been argued for verbatim to death, and it's it's so hard because there's genuinely just classic after classic after classic in in this section, and it's not just you know, some of the best we've ever seen, but it's some of the riskiest Oscar winners we've ever seen. Like, you're not going to see some stuff that's just like experimental outside of, you know, the 80s. Once we reach the 90s and go forwards, 
a lot of them are pretty structured. You know, they got away with a lot in this era, the previous era, and the eighties, but especially this era. So, um, it's exciting stuff. It's kind of fascinating that the people that made these movies are now the people responsible for voting on the Oscars. And, you know, they were so boundary pushing yet for the most part, you know, you can quibble about uh, the quality of the winners or not, but they're all usually fairly safe, well-polished films that win all the big awards, not to deny the the credibility, especially of the performances, where there's some fascinating performances of one, but they're all very polished films. Yeah, because, you know, you, you'll have still stuff getting nominated or even winning now that have some sort of, you know, convention pushing, like you, you look at something like The Artist, but back in 72 which we're going to cover you know you had something like Cries and Whispers which is a Bergman film which I don't know have you seen that I have not no um it's one of my all-time favorites but the fact that this film got nominated it's an extremely experimental graphic kind of art housey film about uh, one of like a group of sisters one of them dying of cancer and all of their different recounts and how they're they're immoralist people. Like it's a very, very art housey film, and you could never get away with that now. But this is back in the seventies, and that didn't even win. It it lost to yet another risky film, which we're going to go into. So you would never find stuff like that now. The closest I could think of um, is a more, which isn't even really art housey. It's just a super depressing foreign film that somehow got nominated. Uh, rightfully so, of course. It's just you don't really expect that with the Oscars nowadays, right? I still claim that Emmanuel Riva was robbed of her best actress. She was better than uh, Jennifer Lawrence, absolutely. Yeah. Uh, all right. So before we get into the countdown, you know, we uh, we've been doing it now. Every time we have one of these episodes, we have a contributor from the Live and Limbo website team um, share some of their favorite movies and what those movies mean to them. So uh, without further ado, we're going to listen to Katrina Latt, a photographer, talk about some of her favorite films. I checked up If I knew while you were sleeping Empty bottle As I said, we're joined this week by Katrina Latt, who is a photographer and sometimes writer for Live and Limbo. Uh, how are you doing tonight, Katrina? Amazingly. So excited to chat with you today, Dakota. Yay. We're glad to, to finally have you on. Uh, we're trying to get a whole bunch of different people that aren't normally uh, on the, the film side of things to kind of join in and just uh, see what other people have to say, because I'm sure people get tired of hearing Andreas and I talk all the time. <laughs> Well, you guys are probably much more knowledgeable when it comes to films than I am, but maybe I can have a, a bit of an outsider perspective. <laughs> we, we like to toot our own horn sometimes, so, you know, it's good to have a different person in the room. Well, I'm definitely different, so I'll give you that. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Um, 
First, you know, when I approached you about this, you said that you don't really watch movies by yourself. Is that because you just don't really watch movies or is it that it's strictly a social thing that you only do with other people? Um, I just don't really watch movies in general. Um, I, as you know, go to lots and lots of shows. I read lots and lots of books, but I'm never really home. And when I am home, it's normally when I'm editing my photos or catching up on books or sleeping. So nah, never really any time to watch movies. Um, and as a result, the only time I ever really do get to do it is when it's a social thing and someone goes out of their way to ask, hey, do you want to do this with me? So yeah, not much of a movie watcher, and that's why when I was doing my catching up in terms of reminding myself which three movies I love so much, it was kind of nice curling up at home and watching a movie by myself for the first time, and I have no idea how long. It's kind of a nice thing. Yeah. Um, you said you're, you're a big reader. Does that mean that if you read a book and they make a movie about it, are you hypercritical about it, or do you go out of your way to avoid it, or go out of your way to see it? Um, well, they're two very different media, so I'm not one to be super critical of them forgetting about a line or changing the color of someone's eyes. Uh, I think that they really exist in their own universe in some ways. However, there are some films that I just will not watch if they were based on a movie. Sorry, if they were, if it was, it's a film based on a book and I have not yet read the book, I refuse to watch it, even if I know that I'm probably not going to read it anytime soon, or even if it's a great movie. Um, so an example of that could be Hugo, which did really well in the Oscars a couple years back, and I have a copy of it sitting on my bookshelf, which I know I will crack open eventually, but have yet to do so. That is a severely underrated movie. I went in when I watched it not expecting very much because mm -hmm. the trailers really didn't give much away about it. I just thought it was some kids running around in Paris <laughs> and CGI stuff. Hey, and no spoilers, no spoilers. No, no, <laughs> purely just what the commercial showed. And then by the time I watched it, I was like, I was really blown away and impressed. And mm -hmm. anytime I would bring it up to someone, they were like, what movie? And no one would remember it. Yeah. Well, I guess I have to get around to reading that book soon then so I can watch the movie and then we can chat about how awesome it is. Yes, please. <laughs> <laughs> um, all right. So I guess let's get this started. Uh, do you have any sort of uh, list or reasoning behind or rationale for these three favorite movies of yours picked? Is it your three guilty pleasure? Are they your three best made movies? Like what, what is the criteria? Well, I'm definitely not a film critic, so I, I wouldn't be able to dissect it and say that the cinematography and X scene was reminiscent of Y scene and it really spoke to this moment in cinema, cinematic history. Um, I like the word the pleasure, personally. I feel like if I enjoy something and I find it pleasurable, I'm not going to be guilty about it just because I love it for what it is. Um, I would say, though, that the three movies I'm picking as my three ones to highlight this time are just movies that I. I love to watch and love to watch over and over again. And they're not necessarily ones that are intensely cerebral, um, but ones that have their moments of joy, their moments of comedy, but also moments that make me think a bit and uh, will stick with me and resonate with me for that reason. Nice. Well, I think that's a, a pretty good criteria to have. And I guess the term guilty pleasure is a bit of a misnomer <laughs> as far as what you know some people assume it means and what it actually usually means for people. Mm -hmm. Uh, so without further ado, what would you say is your first movie, favorite movie? 
Uh, well, I, I had a bit of a, uh, a marathon on Friday night where I watched the three movies and just reacquainted them with myself. Um, so I guess I'll go in order of which I watched first to the last one that I watched. So I started at, I think, like 7 p.m. and I stayed up till 2 a.m. watching everything. <laughs> And was completely happy doing so just because I love these movies so much. So the first movie that I am picking as one of my three favorite movies of all time for the purposes of this conversation is a movie called Down With Love. Um, I won't be able to tell you who the director was, who the producer was, who the studio was, any of that fun stuff that a real film critic should know, but I'm not a real film critic. Um, but what I can tell you is that it stars Renee Zellweger and uh, Uma Gregor and uh, David Hyde Pierce is in there as well. All right. Now, this isn't one I've seen. Um, what about this movie sort of speaks to you? Because it's sort of a, a romantic comedy sort, uh, which, you know, is not the first thing I associate with when I think of Katrina Lott. <laughs> I, I'm a romantic person. What are you insinuating I'm here? Not, I'm not insinuating you're not romantic. It's just I don't think romantic comedy when I think of Katrina Lott. Okay. Um, well, the reason why I picked this movie as one of my favorites is that, yes, it is a romantic comedy, but I think it's so much more than that. Um, it's a, a, a throwback, if you will, to the 50s style of romantic comedy. Uh, it's very stylized. There's some very interesting camera angles and the way that they decided to present things and costumes. But the reason why I love this movie so much is because... Um, how would you say it's it's very witty and there are some lines in there that just make you laugh and you know that they would never actually be delivered in real life that way but the the characters and the the writing is just really well done um the other thing i love about this is that it kind of touches on some feminist issues and if there are any like, real hardcore femi feminists who have seen this movie they might not like it just because of the twists at the end which i do not want to give away um, but part of why I like this movie so much is that, as you realize while watching the movie, is that the girl is very much in control of everything that is going on, whether the audience and the male protagonist knows it or not. So I really appreciate that, whereas some, in some romantic comedies, there's just this female who's swept away in all of this and going with the flow and maybe not the strongest of characters. Uh, the characters in this are very, very strong, especially the female one. And I really, really respect her for that. Well, that's good to hear. I think, you know, Renee Zellweger sort of gets a bit of a bad rap as far as the movie she picks. But for the most part, they're, they're usually good... Um, uh, twists on what you expect as far as she does mostly romantic films whether dramas or comedies they're usually not quite what you expect of the genre themselves which is a nice little twist yep exactly and of course Ewan McGregor is always fantastic yes and you'll soon learn how much I do love Ewan McGregor <laughs> spoiler for one of my later picks <laughs> all right well then what's your second pick uh, the second pick, um, second movie I watched on my Friday night while binge-watching movies would be the musical movie, Singing in the Rain. Uh, again, don't remember who the director is or producer or any of that fun stuff that I should probably know, um, but I can tell you that it stars uh, the wonderful Gene Kelly. Uh, what's their name? Um, Debbie Reynolds. Debbie Reynolds and Donald O'Connor. Donald O'Connor. Um, so one of the interesting things about this movie is that when it first came out, it wasn't actually that well critically received. So Donald O'Connor did win, I believe it was an Oscar for his role, um, but Demi Reynolds and Gene Kelly were not honored the same way. Uh, and 
even though it is really well loved now and on a bunch of lists of the the best movie musicals of all time, at the time when it first came out, it didn't quite hit. Uh, so I, I think that's really interesting as well in that we look at movies that come out in this day and age, and some of them do really well with the critics, some of them don't. And I think it'll be interesting 50 years down the line from now, taking note of what are the ones that are, we're still remembered for and the ones that people are still watching yeah, this this film has some really iconic moments in the history of movies themselves. You know, you can't the the, the theme song is so instantly instantly recognizable that you start humming mm-hmm. and everyone knows exactly what you're doing. And the dance where he's swinging around the light post with the umbrella yep. in his hand, like that's just so iconic. Mm-hmm. That like I know. Oh, no, go ahead. Go ahead. Oh, okay. Well, when I tell people that one of my favorite movies of all time is Singing in the Rain, a lot of them will say, oh, yeah, I love that dance number. I love that song. But the movie in itself is so much more than that one number. Um, And I really just wish everyone would take the time to watch that movie and learn a little bit about cinematic history and when talking was first introduced into movies and that aspect of history, but also the the comedy in that movie and the other great dance numbers that are there. Um, Make Them Laugh with Donald O'Connor. I love that. And it's just such a well-named song because every single time without fail, that song just makes me burst out laughing. Just the the joy in that and the performance of Donald O'Connor is just so joyful. That actually might be probably one of the greatest dance sequences ever. Yes, for sure. It's just so well choreographed and it's so acrobatic that you just can't believe that Mm -hmm. someone actually did that. Yeah. And it's funny. But there are also moments... um, Go ahead. I, I was just going to say, it's funny. I, I used to watch Glee when it first came out, and they recreated that moment, mm-hmm. and they d- redid the whole number. Uh, and Well, they tried to, but I think singing <laughs> definitely did it better. Yeah, well, there's something to be said about the original and something to be said about someone who's such a great performer like Donald O'Connor. There's a reason why he won those uh, Oscars that year, for sure. <laughs> just as a side note, he actually wasn't even nominated for an Oscar. Oh, really? What was he nominated for? Because I know he won something. Uh, it looks like he, he won a Golden Globe. Um, That's what it was. Golden Globe. Okay. Yeah. Yeah, the <laughs> See, only... I told you I'm not a person. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, the only one who was nominated for the Oscar was uh, Gene Hagen, who played Lena Lamont, the other uh, That's the other an interesting story as well. Yeah. Uh, all right. Well, then let's wrap it up. What is your number three movie? My number three movie, which is actually my number one movie, I saved the best for last, is a film called Big Fish. So this one, I do know the director. I know it was directed by Tim Burton. And this one stars, yet again, Uma McGregor. The fantastic one. Uh, So what about him specifically? Is it just a coincidence that these two movies ended up on your list? Or is it a large part because of McGregor's performances? Uh, Well, funnily enough, another one of my favorite movies is definitely Moulin Rouge, which also has Uma McGregor in it. Um, I don't think it's anything to do with him specifically as an actor. Maybe it's just that he tends to pick a bit quirkier films. I'm not sure. Um, but it just uh, happens to be a coincidence that I do end up liking the films that he ends up picking. Yeah, that could very much be the case. Uh, yeah. you, had, you had mentioned uh, at the beginning about uh, being films not always being cerebral. I think Big Fish definitely qualifies as a cerebral film. <laughs> Well, I, what I love about that film is that it kind of sneaks up on you. 
you, you go into it and there are these fantastic moments and moments of comedy and moments of joy. And then at the end of it, you realize, oh my goodness, I'm completely bawling right now. I'm thinking about my entire life, about what I'm going to do when I get older, how people will remember me. And uh, it sneaks up on you. It's, it turns out it's a very cerebral movie. It's a v- very much one that sticks with you. But the way that you get eased into it isn't part of what makes it such a great movie. Is this uh, one of the books that you made sure you read first before you saw the movie? I actually cheated here. I'll be entirely honest. Uh-oh. Um, I know I didn't know that the the book existed for this one when I first watched it. I I believe this one came out was it in two thousand and three? Is it that was, right? Yes. So I was a bit younger when I was then, so I'll, I'll uh, chocolate it up to childhood ignorance and forgive myself a bit. I do have a copy of the novel though, and I've cheated and have not read it yet. So. Oh my gosh. I know, I, I'm not a very good person at keeping my word, apparently. <laughs> Now, I think it's quite funny with everything that you have said, you've you've mentioned several times that you're no film critic. You seem to know quite a bit more than you're giving yourself credit <laughs> for, uh, especially with the way the composition and structure of films go. Uh, well, I guess one reason why I would say that I would never credit myself as being a film critic is just the number of films I've seen and the the types of films I've seen. Oftentimes I'll find myself in conversation with someone and uh, talking about their favorite films and they'll mention some, I'm going to completely embarrass myself by saying this, but things like uh, The Godfather, things like Pulp Fiction or Fight Club, which I've never actually seen. And those are seminal movies that people will constantly talk about when they talk about modern film uh, and important film. And I just can't add to that conversation. And I feel that because I can't draw from those classic films, um, in some ways, maybe that cheapens my ability of saying that I'm a film critic. <laughs> oh, well, I think you're interesting enough without having seen those movies. Well, well, thank you. Well, I think at the end of the day, sure, maybe I would like to watch those movies eventually. Um, but me being able to say that I'm a film critic isn't a big deal to me. At the end of the day, these are movies that I enjoy, and whether or not I can speak to them in an, an educated, film-wise, jargon way or not, it doesn't really matter to me, because these are films that I love, and I would love to share them with other people. Well, I think that was very well put. Uh, <laughs> thank you so much for coming on and, and sharing these movies with me. Well, thanks for having me, Dakota. All right, uh, so that was Katrina Latt's three favorite films. So I say we just get straight into this, you know, um, I'll, I'll start off. We've got, uh, number 10 coming at number 10 is Oliver. I, I guess that's how you say it. Cause there's an exclamation mark <laughs> at the end, or should I just say, like, is that the correct way to pronounce it? Or is it just Oliver? Uh, I imagine it being screamed because that's how I felt at the end of the movie. Just like Oliver, just why? And that's, that's how I pronounce it. Oliver. Like, if Stallone was saying it. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah. Well, uh, I guess we'll ask his opinion soon enough, right? <laughs> All right. This movie came out in 1968 and it was directed by Carol Reed, uh, a name that shares significance to you and I because we've talked about it before, but we almost named this podcast The Third Man, which is Carol Reed's 
far and away best film he ever made. Um, yes. His film noir. Uh, but he's here directing uh, the musical adaptation of Oliver Twist, the Charles Dickens, very famous novel, which if you don't know what Oliver is about by now, like... I don't know. I'm sorry. You should probably just turn this podcast off. Uh, but in case that you haven't and you aren't turning this off, please don't. Uh, it's about a young boy who runs away from an orphanage and meets a group of boys trained to be pickpockets by an elderly mentor. Um, this movie was both at the bottom of our list. This, this came in 10th place for both of us. But that said, while it's not anything amazing to write home about we have definitely seen some far worse films in our journey so far yeah uh, it's it's an interesting film because art direction wise it's actually quite on top and i loved ron moody's portrayal of faggot in the film and that that's basically it i don't know I think between the two of us, especially when it comes to this podcast, I've been the more lenient with, you know, the musical films. Like, you know, Sound of Music, I'm one of the few people on Earth who's a little bit forgiving of a film, that kind of nauseating. But when it came to Oliver, I just, the songs wouldn't end for me. They just kept going and going and going. And when a movie's two and a half hours long, and the songs are putting you to sleep, and they just won't stop, I think that's a very bad start. I don't care how flashy it is, and I don't care how great of a portrayal the the supporting actor is. I don't know. What do you think? Yeah, yeah, I agree. I feel like um, Tom Hooper definitely watched this movie a whole bunch of times before making Les Miserables because there yeah. is so much similar as far as almost there there's almost no talking in Les Mis but there is very limited scenes of just dialogue before they break out into song and dance um so it's it's clearly some sort of influence on on Tom Hooper's film which uh I have repeatedly put down many times and I, it just is frustrating me to even think about that right now. Um, <laughs> I agree what you're saying about um, Ron Moody's performance. I think also um, uh, Jack Wilde, who plays the Artful Dodger, the two of them are, are actually quite strong in their roles. The main kid is a little too um, squishy. I don't even know how to say it. Like there, there isn't much, you know, gusto to his performance. He, he plays the wide eyed character fairly decently and is quite naive. Uh, but you know, there's no real chops to it. And then when you read in the trivia that all of his singing is dubbed by, uh, the composer's daughter or something like that, that's all you can hear is that it's very clearly not his singing and, you know, dubbed fairly poorly as well. Uh, if I might add. So it's kind of, frustrating as it goes on you're just like you're not even acting this very well uh which is a little bit frustrating i think as a positive note the the choreography was quite stylized and and, and quite enjoyable at some moments um they really had a good cohesive feel especially the the introduction when you meet all these young boys at the workhouse how it's very choreographed but at the same time they each have their own sort of a uh, unique personality where you can tell that they're weak and are underfed and malnourished and all these things. Uh, so it kind of adds the personality that they're not 100% spot on perfect. Like you don't go to the, the national ballet to see imperfections. You see the imperfections in this. I don't know if that was just a case of, you know, these young boys couldn't do it in time, but I think that worked for them. 
Yeah, uh, just to go backwards for one millisecond for an awful pun. So, uh, so his voice was dubbed by somebody that wasn't even his, so he wasn't even singing. What an Oliver twist! Anyways, to go back to uh, to go back to uh, what you were saying, I think one of the few scenes I actually liked was, as you said, the beginning, and I'll, I'll tell you why. There's only two scenes in the film I felt like weren't stretched out beyond belief in terms of its plot or song or anything. That's the very first one when you see Oliver basically being egged on to go up to the front and be the you know the sacrificial lamb to you know ask for more food and see how, see what they say. You know, there's not some long song that that precedes it where it's like Oliver, are you going to be the one who asks? You know, like it just happens and it's natural. That's the only good instance of this. The only bad instance of this, and maybe you'll agree with me, is the ending where so much of the film is. You know, if you want a slice of bread, you have a five-hour-long song about why or why not you should get a slice of bread. However, when it comes to the end of the film, where should we spoil or? Uh, yeah, you know, this is a fairly uh, well-known story, so I don't think you're really spoiling anything. Okay, when he gets picked up by a family, like, the door opens, he gets hugged, and that's it. Like, there's no emotional reward from that. Like, why is that so quick? You have songs that... You know, you sing about picking a pocket or two for 15 minutes. We understand you need to rob for a living. You know, all of these things that just are beaten to death. And you think the songs are going to finish, but they keep going. But the most emotionally rewarding part of the film is like a split second of him getting hugged at the door. And you don't even see who's hugging him. Like, really, that's how you end a two and a half hour movie that's just stretched too much. If there's one part that should have been stretched more, it's that. And... I don't it, it 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 knocked it down a peg or two for me because at least if it ended well, I'd be like, okay, well, you know, it was long, it was boring, but at least it ended well. But no, that, I don't know. Am I the only one who feels this way? No, that's that's totally viable. Where you, uh, when he gets reunited, I look down to to write a note in my book, and I look up, and the credits start to roll because, <laughs> and I completely miss the moment where he like. They open the door, he hugs, and then it's over. And, and literally, that's all there is to it, which was a little frustrating. Um, <clears throat> I think um, you, there's also a moment – not a moment. It's more of a Carol Reed's uh, style getting in the way of this film. There are – Probably half a dozen, if not more, closer to 10 Dutch angles throughout this film. That's where the camera is at about a 45 degree angle. Uh, and usually it's to show that something is askew or something is suspicious or you should be on edge about something that's happening. It's used a lot in horror films for suspense purposes because it's supposed to disorient you. But this is uh, a family friendly musical and in some pretty nonsensical places, these Dutch angles show up also that way at the very end chase sequence the only time that the movie gets sort of dark they can reuse it then and if they didn't do it earlier in the film that would seem even more out of place but the fact that you have these dutch angles all over the place makes them seem out of place yeah uh absolutely i mean it wasn't battlefield earth territory in terms of overuse of dutch angles but it was still bad but to go back to what you were saying that's another scene that was actually one of the few that I really enjoyed was the final, you know, the finale chase sequence where, you know, it's on top of the rooftops. And it, as you said, it gets really dark because, you know, there's the inevitability of death. Somebody is going to die and you're not quite sure who it is. Um, 
But, you know, when, once we got to that point, the movie just felt like such a chore to get through that it, I didn't really care. And it I don't have to really boring. awful think the same. Yeah, exactly. Uh, I don't know. Like, the audience got pickpocketed by Oliver. You know, it's, it's just what it was. Yeah, um, there's, I, I, I mentioned it before about the dancing, and there's one more that I want to mention. Um, there's the scene when uh, after Oliver first gets adopted about halfway through the film, and he wakes up and he's in this beautiful rich neighborhood, and the street sort of comes alive, and all the window washers and flower girls start dancing. It, it sort of felt like a, a Gene Kelly American in Paris sort of sequence, the way how, how stylized it all was, and properly choreographed and, and that was definitely sort of a, an enjoyable redeeming moment for me yeah now that you put it that way um you're absolutely right it also felt a little bit my fair lady you know perhaps you know it, earlier on in the film where mm-hmm. it's you know the, the city marketplace coming alive yeah that's that was a typical musical moment but again at that point if i kind of just felt like no more songs can we just get somewhere and it's unfortunate because there are some redeeming moments in the film that don't spruce it up but maybe they're fun to revisit in isolation you know but uh after this rocky start to our podcast do you want to go on to the next film yeah let's do it all right so um i guess that was my not so subtle segue number nine is uh well the beloved sports film that hopefully won't get us a ton of death threats we're putting it at number nine it's Rocky by John G. Alvardsten, uh, which obviously stars and is written by the beloved, hunky, strongman himself, Sylvester Stallone. And, you know, it's got Burt Young, Talia Shear, Burgess, uh, Meredith, Carl Weathers, of course, in a very iconic role. And, um, you know, before we get into why this film is beaten to death, uh, why is it number nine, Dakota? <laughs> Um, you know, this movie sometimes, I think Sylvester Stallone had some really good ideas and a great outline for a story, but unfortunately, I don't know if it's because of him or because of other people getting their hands into it, uh, it gets in the way of itself and becomes way too overly sentimental for its own good. The problem is, this movie has been parodied and remade and rehashed to death so many times uh it's basically impossible to look at this with fresh eyes now even the very the first time i watched it was was probably about two years ago i'd never seen it before uh even then it was a hard movie to get through because you feel like you've seen it all um it's it's definitely one of the more frustrating ones to get through because you can't remember where something is innovative and original and in rewarding and when it's been mimicked to death that you just have to roll your eyes. I kind of found in a bit of a contradictory way doing this podcast, especially watching it up against all these other films and seeing what it you know was nominated against or what it beat, which. You know, I, I'm going to go into this. I have a bit of a newfound respect for Rocky, but how did it beat Network? I'll never know. Anyways, uh, up against other films, like, you know, you're watching The French Connection, The Godfathers, both of them, The Sting. I found it a little bit easier to go back in time and try and see what this was. And, you know, 
now you can look at it and be like, how did this win its schlocky? But to try and transport myself back in time, you have this schlocky film that's very far from perfect. You know, it's messy, it's sloppy, uh, but there's a heart to it. And that's Rocky as a person. You know, he's a mess and he's a bum, but there's a heart somewhere. So you just feel so bad and you want it to keep going. And, you know, Talia Shear is just like this recluse that doesn't make any sense in society but you want her to do well even though in any other film it'd be like this person it's a loser let's stop looking at them but there's just something that, about rocky that's just such a complete and utter mess but i still found some sort of new appreciation for it not to say that it's an excellent film but its heart is what made it win which unfortunately i think and you might agree with me ended up being the typical kind of Oscar bait that preceded it from here on out, because how many films have won because of that kind of sentimentality, right? Yeah, yeah. Uh, it's interesting. I think for me, watching Creed, the movie from last year, uh, and then rewatching this has given me a new appreciation of Rocky, because Creed was amazing. Um, there's no doubt about that. And I think one of the things that I really took away from Creed was Sylvester Stallone's uh, broken and lonely performance. And then with watching it under the guise of, of the Creed shadow, I could definitely see the same things that he was going for in this original film. And, you know, about three quarters of the movie that of, that Sloan is in, I think he actually really nails this sort of heartbroken, lonely performance of a man that is, is having such inner conflict with himself about who he believes he is and, and who the world perceives him to be. Yeah, absolutely. And I don't know, cause the first and only time before this podcast that I watched this, I was much younger and, you know, even films that, you know, you used to love you know you look back on it like oh what was that you know and i just never really cared for rocky i was always a raging bull kind of person despite the fact that that's even less about boxing than rocky truly is and if you watch rocky you know forget all of its sequels and everything else it's really not that much about boxing is it i mean it's more or less just about this bum trying to make it in life he just happens to be a boxer and that just happens to be his biggest drive outside of you know dating what is it, the pet store owner? Anyways, um, and you're right, like, I, I just, watching this with, you know, like, an academic background, you know, a lot more experience and wisdom under my belt when it comes to this kind of thing, and you know what, he did a pretty damn good job. Of course, he shouldn't have won, which he didn't, he lost to Peter Finch, but, uh, actually, was he even nominated for acting? I don't think I, he I don't was. know, uh, I've got it up he here. Might have been. I think he was actually. He, he was nominated, yes. Yeah, well, Peter Finch rightfully won that year his posthumous award for Network. Um, nonetheless, I'm glad that he did get nominated because, you know, I'm not into, like, the Expendables or anything, but if I had to pick a best, and you might agree with me here, I, it might be Sylvester Stallone, if not Jean-Claude Van Damme, like, the two that actually have a lot of redeeming qualities in terms of acting, and this is definitely a great starting point for, you know, a guy who started out as a poor man who lost his dog, he was homeless, this was his last resort, and he made this film. It's a great real-life triumph story, and you know what, it, it's, I'm just really happy that it, it went well. It just also didn't go too well, because uh, what are some of the problems with the film? Um, 
There's some problems where I, I'm not too sure if it's the era or if it's just Stallone's writing, but I found it to be weirdly sexist at some at some really weird times. You know, he tries to make himself seem like uh, the champion of everybody, uh, teaching the young girl, some young girl, not to hang out with boys or else she'll become a whore. Uh, that was kind of weird. And then, of course... Um, his best friend Polly, the way he berates his sister Adrian, uh, making her to be his housewife, even though he's she's her his sister, was very weird and, and sort of like kind of off putting. Uh, and basically, every scene that Polly was in was was pretty cringeworthy. It was so over the top and ridiculous that you couldn't believe it, and like it, you just felt like weird and awkward for everyone that was in the same scene as him. Yeah, I'll try and uh, play devil's advocate for the young girl thing. To me, that was Rocky being, you know, dumb as a brick, thinking this is how you're supposed to go about things. But he meant well. In terms of Polly, I've got nothing, I, and I don't get why he ended up being like this important character later on in the film because, or like later on in the in the series of films. Because to me, and you might agree, I thought Polly was one of the villains of this film just because of how unlikable he was and just what he stood for. He was a pain in the ass. And why is he seen as this triumph in the other Rocky films in this series? Like, why is why does he go on to be, like, such a good character? In this film, he's one of the villains. He gets in Rocky's way so often. He gets in Adrian's way so often. He's an asshole. I don't like him. And I don't think you did either, right? No, I didn't. It was it was very obvious, and he seemed more to be opportunistic about trying to take advantage of his friend's uh, sudden newfound luck and glory than anything. Uh, and, and Rocky still wants to do good by him. And I think that aspect, you know, talking about it sounds interesting, but I think the way it's executed is not done in a very flattering way or the payoff doesn't reflect it, you know. Uh, Rocky just keeps on doing good by him and eventually, you know, Pauly redeems himself by being nice. And it's just like, there is no redeeming quality to that. You didn't solve the character. You didn't save anything. Uh, you just sort of shoehorned it in. Yeah, speaking of shoehorn, to wrap this film up, that iconic ending where, you know, you don't necessarily, like, you, you could figure he lost to to Creed, but, um, you know, it kind of just freezes on him hugging Adrian, and now it's kind of seen as, like, iconic, whatever, but re-watching it, I found it extremely unsatisfying, like, that's just the way that it ends, like, it wasn't a good ambiguous, because, believe me, I love No Country for Old Men, Mulholland Drive. There will be blood. I love ambiguous endings. Don't get me wrong, but this just was like a bad ending. It's like okay, well, that's just how it ends. Goody. Um, and yeah, I don't know if you felt the same way, but yeah, it, it's a tough ending. I don't want to end this yet. There's a couple more things I want to talk about, especially as sure. far as uh, what I think worked well. Um, you know, we talked about Stallone's performance. I think he does a great job of playing someone who is pained and understands his limitations and is doing his best to work past them. And in doing so, you know, like you were talking about, he always has best intentions in mind for everyone around him. You know, he doesn't, there's no one, knowing his pain, no one is beneath him. 
you know, even the people he has to go and collect money from, they're not beneath him. The, the people that are jerks to him, they're not beneath him. Everyone is on the same footing, you know. And so mm-hmm. I think Stallone does a great job showing that where he, he never is condescending or anything like that. I also think he's quite romantic. Um, I think the scene when, uh, he has uh, a timer of 10 minutes to impress Adrian at the skating rink is a really sweet and adorable scene where, you know, he knows he's up against the clock. He has 10 minutes only to impress this girl who, for the most part, has so far resisted his advances quite, quite literally, uh, and figuratively. And, and he managed to do it. Uh, and then it gets weird when he brings Adrian back to his apartment. It seems kind of rapey a little bit, but then when they fall on the floor making out, it's, it's a very romantic scene and it's not polished it's dirty it's gross more so the setting than the actions but it sort of works for the atmosphere um and and i really like that i think the sort of you can follow up on that but i think the last thing i want to talk about is i think you know i I was saying how oliver seemed to influence les mis i think a movie like on the waterfront is it was the main inspiration for this, you yes. know, because Marlon Brando was the boxer who never got his shot. Where this very, very similar circumstances, you know, he's working for uh, a gangster type character, uh, collecting money from people that owe him money, uh, and then is a small time boxer. And this is what if Marlon Brando got the opportunity to be a contender? Uh, this is this is. Sylvester Stallone's take on that, which I think is quite fascinating when you when you view it through the lens of that. Yeah, and it's special because he didn't just make it as a boxer. I mean, he was punching raw meats and breaking his wrists and, and his knuckles doing so. He was running up public stairs. You know, he did whatever it took to be able to do that, even though he was a rundown, poor you know, awful excuse of a human being who really wasn't. He just was outcast as one, even though he had the heart to do it. And that's what survived in the end was his heart and his spirit. And yeah, I like, like you said, and you pretty much covered all of them. I think there are some redeeming qualities to the film that give me a new appreciation for it. Um, it's still not like a favorite of mine. I still think Raging Bull's a thousand times superior, even though I would still argue that both are barely sports films or films about boxing. Just, on a small level, but there's a new appreciation for Rocky Wars before I would completely dismiss it. And now I kind of, you know, have a new light for it. But to go back to uh, the Polly character, do you want to go on about another famous asshole whose name starts with a P? Yeah, sure. Um, coming in at number eight is Patton, which came out in 1970, directed by Franklin J. Schaffner. Uh, and it's the World War II phase of the career of the controversial American general George S. Patton, starring George C. Scott um, as the titular George S. Patton, uh, with a supporting turn by Carl Malden. Um, this is a... This is an this is a very interesting movie. It's 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 very famous for its introduction scene uh where where Patton is giving his speech to the troops in front of a giant American flag and I think if you watch only that scene alone uh you can basically sum up what the entire movie is about. Uh the the American fighting spirit has, has never wavered and sort of the the irony of being in front of this oversized uh laughable 
American flag is just the the dominant and the ego of the American military industrial complex is basically what the root of this entire film is about. It's funny you should say that because if I'm not mistaken, wasn't that scene supposed to be either after the intermission or at the very end? But for some reason, they push it to the beginning, which you might agree is the best decision they could have made. Like. Yeah, from what I read about it, um, it was scripted to be at the beginning, and Scott hated that idea. He said it should come at the very end, so yeah. they shot it, and they promised him that it would be at the very end, and he didn't realize until he saw it for the first time that it ended up being at the beginning. Well, what I've come to learn is George C. Scott's best performances uh, are from people lying to him, like Stanley Kubrick lying that Dr. Strangelove was a comedy. He said it was a drama, and George C. Scott did a good job. So uh, I guess that's what you got to do. you got to lie to the man because he's too stubborn. Um, yeah, it's, it's an interesting film because I've seen it twice now, and while I know that I liked it, and you might have the same problem I do, I only remember very little of it, and it's very weird. Like, I remember the witty dialogue, which part of it was written by Francis Ford Coppola, which we're going to definitely get into soon. Um, I remember the choreography of a lot of the, the battle sequences being absolutely breathtaking. And, you know, as a, as a fellow cinema, as a cinephile, actually, you could probably feel those moments like I do when it's like, ah, this is film magic, where it's like, okay... This is filmmaking at its finest. Like, this is just beautiful, beautifully done. And I felt a lot of that in this film. But aside from that, like, when it comes to a lot of the contextual parts, I have vague memories and I get what happened and I remember what happened, but nothing sticks quite as well, especially for a film that runs on three hours. Yeah, this is a film that sort of suffers from its overindulgence and overachieving wannabeness. Um, the moments that work is when the overindulgence is just at the right spot and it, it all fits perfectly. And then the moments that don't work, it's just like, come on, guys, you're trying way too hard to make this these pieces of this puzzle that are two very different puzzles fit together. And it's a little bit frustrating at times because, you know, you'll go from like – 20 minutes to a half an hour of some, you know, great dialogue scenes to some great military action scenes. And you're just like, wow. And then, you know, the next 20 minutes, half an hour, you're just like, oh my God, this movie is still going on. I feel like I've been watching it for five hours already. And then something interesting and exciting will happen again. It'll suck you back in. And, and then it just, I don't know if it's, they tried to do too much because they definitely cram in a ton of moments about Patton's life. Uh, or if it's just, Poor editing, poor pacing, poor script writing. I don't know what what it is, but something about this film gets in the way of itself uh, to its detriment. I don't know if it's a script writing, because I think that's one of the more solid aspects of the movie, actually. I think it's the directing where... Um, you know, despite the, the amazing choreography of, you know, the battle sequences, things kind of just drag out. Like, you, you, you watch them march the entire stairway, which... You don't necessarily have to. It's all these little kind of minor things that can that can be changed, where it doesn't always have to be grandiose. You know, you're allowed to, you know, be choppy and and you know, like have a beat that isn't just everything is majestic. And maybe that's what it is that drags it out a little bit too long. Because there's nothing wrong with a long movie, and we're definitely going to see a lot of those in this in this chapter of our podcast. But um, there's something wrong with a long movie that always likes being a long movie and 
that could be what it is. Because don't get me wrong, Patton's a terrific film, but parts of it are just very difficult to pick up again because I I don't know. It's not an, a movie that's not easy to remember, but at the same time, you remember some things way more than other parts. And I remember the dialogue being excellent, but I don't actually remember most of the dialogue. I mean, do you have that same problem as well? Uh, yeah, I do. I think there's, um, you know, there's only a, a couple moments, um, the main one is when when Patton is berating uh, soldiers about uh, who don't want to go back to fighting uh, because they're either too injured or they have PTSD and things like that. And the way he, he sort of treats the people that have the PTSD, I think at the time when this film was released... Um, you know, they tried to make it objectively about, well, is this guy a good guy or a bad guy? Um, but I think as the film has aged, it is very, very clear what type of man that George C. Scott was, especially everything that we know about the effects of PTSD. And we know what happens afterwards, that these men that he berate for having that, that he berated for having this, uh, we know what their lives turn out when they come back home. We know that, you know, most of them probably would have either killed themselves or spent the rest of their life addicted to drugs and alcohol or would have come back and taken out their, uh, the horrors that they saw on their wives and children and things like that. We know all this now because we have the, the benefit of hindsight and the advancement of mental health therapy. Where watching this, you kind of can't help but cringe when they're trying to show this even keeled portrayal of is he a good guy or is he a bad guy when it's quite obvious this man is just a bad person. Even when it comes to this podcast, you don't have to look very far to look at something like The Best Years of Our Lives to see, you know, an even earlier film, much earlier, was battling, you know, PTSD a little bit better than this was. And you know, if you look at it as your own interpretation, you could easily say, okay, you know, this is a this is a good portrayal of an awful person. But if you look at it from the, the way you were saying, you know, is this a good guy or is this a bad guy? If you look at it from now, like, there's no question that this guy is just a real piece of work. And it's it's kind of insane to try and think of it as a good story or a bad story because the only thing that I could see kind of him, like, kind of being wavering on him being a good person is his passion for warfare and his addiction to, to being a leader. But that's about it. Like, uh, all of his methods are pretty backwards. You know, when he gives that famous apology sequence, you know, for slapping that, that sick soldier, it's kind of like, okay, apologies happened. I didn't really buy it. Whereas maybe back in the day, it would have been more of like a, a more forgiving scene. Maybe, I don't know. Yeah. And, and if they're portray, I think, I think what the directors and, and Scott were probably trying to do maybe has gotten lost over time, but that's not to take away with the, the performance as a whole. I think the idea that we have this celebrated American war general, uh, who maybe shouldn't be as celebrated as much as he should be, uh, especially as a person. I think that's a very interesting concept. And I think we've, there's definitely other films that sort of deal with this as well, maybe in a bit better, more, um, 
um, uh, more planned out sort of way, but I think it sort of holds up in that sort of way. If you, if you're willing to revise the tone in your head, the movie is quite solid. Um, and you had mentioned Francis Ford Coppola. I feel like this was, this was sort of Coppola's coming out party and what he did in this film directly influenced what he was doing later. You know, he wrote the script and it, it sort of plays like Apocalypse Now light. You even have Robert Duvall who acts like George Patton, uh, yes. in his famous scene where maybe that sort of, Coppola's way of acknowledging, hey, I know Patton wasn't a good person, so I'm actually going to play it the way I view Patton, and makes this um, oh, what, what's Duvall's character? Um, oh, Kill- Killjoy, I think. Oh, Kilgore. What is it, sorry? Is it Kilgore, I think? Kilgore, yeah. yeah. Lieutenant Kilgore, something like that, which, you know, in his name is exactly the type of character he is. And then you even have uh, the winter prayer scene uh, at the end of the movie, which basically plays out like the the baptism scene in The Godfather, which we're going to talk about uh, in in the next episode. Uh, so I, I think that Coppola took what he learned here to heart and sort of reused things and made them better for himself. Yeah, it, it's weird because I know this wasn't directed by Coppola, but like you, I kind of see this more as kind of a... a precursor to Coppola's career because the writing is definitely something that you would see in his earlier films and yeah I think uh, Coppola's influence as as well as uh, oh the other writer I'm gonna look this up right now Edmund H. North I I definitely feel like uh, especially with their dialogue uh, where a lot of it was a saving graces film especially because you know to have an unlikable person like Patton Maybe the character wasn't written well, but to have him, you know, like the way he speaks and, you know, his his spirit carried out through through his dialogue and his words, I think uh, was a saving grace to such kind of an awful character, I would say. I think another good saving grace about this film um, is they give equal opportunity to show the German side of things at times. And I really enjoyed the fascination between uh, the German generals uh, and, and Pat and how they both respected each other to the point where they wished it was just the two of them one-on-one fighting to determine who is the better soldier, who has the better army, who is the better country, things like that, where there's a real mutual respect. And I sort of respect that, uh, especially considering this movie is, is, what, 30 years after World War II? Yeah. When most people were not ready to respect the Germans is pretty fascinating. Yeah, that was also nice, especially because uh, you know Patton was such a such a tortured character. You know, it wasn't this side's better than that, despite the the oversized American flag at the start of the film. Um, it was more or less. There's good people everywhere. There's bad people everywhere, and. You know, despite the killing, deep down, both generals and or lieutenants rather wanted, you know, wanted their 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 own personal trophy. Let's say where you know, as you said, um, w- like we're we're just better. It just it's unfortunate so many people have to die to prove this kind of thing. You know, there's a there's a weird profound respect despite all of the 
the monstrous actions that happen, of course. Well, it, it's also war, and you have to kind of expect it in a war film. So, uh, you, you know. I think the last thing I want to say about this is I can't decide if this movie wants to be pro-war and anti-hero or anti-war and pro-hero. That's actually a good question. Um, I think it's tolerant of war. Um in terms of its hero complex, I actually have no idea what it's trying to do, to be honest. <laughs> yeah, I think I think you could probably write an entire essay where you're trying to figure out which one that is. Is it pro-war anti-hero or anti-war pro-hero? Because I've, I've been trying to figure it out since I watched it, and, and I'm still not too sure exactly what the filmmakers were trying to achieve with it. Maybe it's left to be ambiguous, which is kind of kind of weird because of how iron-fisted of a person Patton was, right? He had no ambiguity. Yeah, exactly. Uh, except the film itself is trying to be a little bit more uh, gray area rather than black and white, which is interesting. So, um, Shall we go forth? Please. Alright, so uh, following up with yet another asshole, um, instead of uh, Patton, we have Popeye Doyle with the one of the more experimental and weird films to win Best Picture. We have the delightfully insane The French Connection, which is directed by William Friedkin, which is also the director of uh, The Exorcist, which is another famous film from the seventies that definitely played on on convention. Um, the French Connection is a very interesting film that. It, it, it pushes a lot of ground because of the fact that it definitely it def- definitely takes advantage of the fact that it is based par- partially in France and has a lot of French ideas. So it brings a lot of French new wave filmmaking to this American film. And it's a very interesting take on film conventions, on character structure if you have an anti-hero like how far you can really go as an anti-hero without crossing boundaries and you might agree with me Popeye Doyle definitely crossed a lot of boundaries um it's an interesting film that I don't know if you could get away with a film like this today especially having it mainstream and win best picture uh what were your thoughts on the French Connection because this is your first time watching it right no no I've seen it before this is a movie that I quite like uh oh I think I think, wow, this is this is tough. I think the the highlights that it hit worked more for me, and the parts that didn't work worked less for me. So it's sort of it's sort of interesting that it became even more polarizing for me. Uh, I think the first thing I want to ask you though about it is what what do you think of the the racist component of of Popeye Doyle's character? Uh, what sort of influence and, and purpose behind that? purpose behind it was maybe this is like a patent thing where back then i know obviously racism was was far less tolerable back then than it was at the start of our podcast um you know back in the 20s and the 30s uh maybe it was more tolerable then but each time i watch a french connection that's still just a it's a it's a sore thumb that i can't you know shake off the entire film where it's like did he have to say that you know did did there have to be a racist component? Like, I get he's a, a you know an old fashioned kind of person, and that's who he is. But we, I still feel like they could have done with a little bit less, especially you know not using specific words because it's not like the edgy antihero where it's like, oh, I still want to follow this guy. 
it's something where it's like, you know, if this guy gets shot, I don't really care, which you don't want to feel that, especially with an anti-hero, because, you know, a hero, you'll try and forgive more. An anti-hero, you've got to like everything that they do, otherwise you don't care what happens to them. Yeah, it's it's certainly a sore spot for me as well, and I'm not too sure exactly what to make of it. Um it's I think I think the the things that this movie does very well are chase sequences. I think there's no doubt yeah. about that. That's the, that's what this movie is most famous for between uh the subway uh chase where he's driving underneath the subway or you know at the very beginning there's this like hilarious moment where he's running in a Santa suit chasing after a guy. Uh, and I find that the chase sequences especially are, are really influential on the stuff that's now being done in like the Bourne movies, which then of course was influential into the James Bond movies. Um, so there, there's some really good precursors action scenes to what we are now seeing done today. It's interesting how it took like 40 years for it to come to fruition though. Um, but yeah, I, I re- like the chase scenes are, are an absolute highlight and it's odd that a movie like this would win best picture when today, no matter how good an action movie like this would be, it is never even getting a best picture nomination, let alone winning. Yeah, I, I don't like, it definitely has action sequences in this film that I think in, in ways it can be considered an action film, but I also, the way I interpret this movie is it's, it wasn't maybe aiming for a lot of the conventions that are taken away from it now. Like, I think a lot of it was just stylistic kind of decisions that just a lot of people maybe now to explain why it maybe took so long to achieve this kind of, this kind of sequence. Um, now we're looking back at it and saying, Hey, that's not really art housey. Like it might've been back in the day. It's not really experimental or different. It's something that we could definitely apply now. And, Maybe it's just a lot more easier to shoehorn into films now. But back then, like, you just didn't really see anything like it. Like, it was an editing miasma. It was, you know, a heart racing kind of, I'm not used to this. I'm used to things panning out a little bit more. This is, this is claustrophobic for me. Like, it's, it was very, yeah, you could definitely see its effect on, on, you know, action films. But I think at its time, maybe it was going for something just a little bit, unconventional especially seeing who the director is right yeah and speaking of the director i think uh his use of the camera is absolutely fascinating in this movie there, there's sort of two real instances that i, I want to talk about uh the first is there's a lot of shots you were saying this movie feels claustrophobic at times which it does but there are quite a few shots of the camera being across the street from from Doyle or, you know, hidden around the corner or something like that. And it almost feels like Doyle, who is normally the one doing the watching, is being watched himself by the audience. Yep. You know, we're peering in and spying on him while he's doing the spying on someone else. And I think that's that's quite an interesting composition to make. Uh, and it, ma- it makes you feel like the voyeur that Doyle really is. And then I think the other one is, I, I already mentioned the, the subway car chase sequence. The camera is mounted really low. It looks like it's mounted on, you know, the bottom of the front bumper or something like that, where you're very close to the ground and, and, 
you know, you're whipping around these poles and you can see the street right at the bottom of your screen. And it just has a very, has an intensity and, and you feel like you're really in it at any given moment. If you were to hit a pole or, or something or have to swerve to get out of the way or a car, you, the viewer feels like they can get hurt themselves. Yeah. It's interesting because I would, I would say outside of like maybe being inside of the car with Doyle, as you said, most of the film is, is an outsider's perspective. And it's not just an outsider's perspective of what's happening within closed quarters. It's virtually an outsider's perspective where it's like if they're, as you said, across the street, the camera zooms in and it doesn't care if it's blurry or distorted. That's what you would have to do to try and fix, you know, your vision from across the street where you still can't even hear what they're talking about per se. Um, and like the end of the film, the first time I watched it, I kind of left feeling a bit disappointed with the way it just ended very suddenly. But, um, now, like, I have a bigger appreciation for it because uh, that's what you would experience as, as, as somebody from an outside perspective. You're not going to see what's happening. You have to be told after the fact, this is what happened, and Doyle screwed up. It's, you know, again, to go back to the French New Wave um, influences that this film had, especially to connect American filmmaking to French filmmaking, it's very Truffaut, it's very Godard, like, a lot of the editing in this film, a lot of, like, the, the city or the respective cities rather being a character in the film, you know, just the, the crowd being one large character of the film that could either be a protagonist or an antagonist, depending on who you're rooting for. You know, do you want them to get in the way of the chase sequences? Do you, do you want them to be cannon fodder when, you know, they're basically getting smashed into with other cars? Like it's an outsider's film and you happen to zero in on this very unlikable anti-hero of a cop, try to do something good. But that's why I like the ambiguity, because unlike Patton, where maybe it was trying to make this guy look like a hero, even though he wasn't, with this, you don't... I personally felt like you're not really forced to feel either way. It, it grants you the opportunity to hate Doyle, because in the end, he essentially doesn't win. In fact, he loses heavily. Yeah, I actually was about to just talk about the ending, where as a viewer, it's quite a frustrating ending. You know, if you've watched one action movie or thriller or chase movie, you've basically seen them all. You know how it's going to end. Uh, and it Friedkin sets you up. He really sets the viewer up. They get to this abandoned warehouse. The cops all arrive. Doyle's got his gun out. He's going to be the one that brings down the bad guy. And he goes into the warehouse and he sees him and he pulls out his gun and he shoots. And it's not the bad guy. And then you find out that the bad guy got away, that this is based on a true story. And Doyle and his partner, played by Roy Scheider, get demoted and they get transferred somewhere else and they eventually quit the police force. And, you know, it's just sort of like, it's a real sort of gut punch at the end because you're just like, yeah, the, he's going to win. He's going to redeem himself. You know, he's been an asshole through it this whole movie, but you know, he's going to, he's going to show that he is a good cop and his hunches were right. And everyone's going to see what a good cop he was. But no, you do not get the satisfaction of having that proper ending. Well, the ending that uh, to reiterate once again, it's very good. Like if you've seen like a band apart, the ending to that, it's just like extremely, abrupt it's like oh okay well that's how that ends and it's the same thing here except a little bit more satisfying especially because it's i guess catered to more american audiences and as you said it's where we discover it's a true story we learned all of this information by the way through like title cards where it's like 
uh, everything's written out, and he just have like these little pictures, I believe, of of the characters, whatever happened. So um, that's that's about it. That's how you find out everything happens, and it's it's an interesting, different gut punch that you won't ever find nowadays, where. It's like, this is how it's resolved. And it's kind of acceptable for its time, especially because, you know, you're the, you're the viewer. How else you would never know that this kind of stuff would happen? Because arguably this would happen in close quarters in, you know, police districts or wherever where the viewer's not allowed to come in and, and listen to any of this discussion. Uh, so it's a good gut punch, I think, because I, I personally thought Doyle was a bad person and this film was a take on corrupt cops not winning which i like that i i think that's redeeming for you know again that character which is the 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 crowd and society as a whole it's redeeming for us we won because you know a shitty cop didn't win yeah so i like that absolutely i think that's one of the things that makes this film work so well and would make this film impossible to be made today if it came out as is today yeah pretty much all right so talking about the last one in this episode coming in at number six is One Flew Over the Cuckoo's Nest from 1975, uh, directed by Milos Forman. Um, it's about a criminal who pleads insanity after getting into trouble again and once in the mental institution rebels against the oppressive nurse and rallies up the scared patients. Uh, and I think, I think that IMDb summary sort of does not really do the film justice. It might make you think it's something else than what it really is. Um, this is a fascinating look at the psyche of of people who who may not all be there, but also what goes into the mind of a criminal and and the look of how we view institutions and things like that. So in that sense, it's almost a horror movie when you think about it at times. Um this is this is arguably Jack Nicholson's crowning performance in his career, um, and he really goes goes all out in this. Where I'm not the biggest fan of Nicholson, where I feel he he overchews the scenery sometimes, but I think for the most part he's he's kept in check and done it at a very modest level. When he's chewing the scenery, it makes sense. Yeah, especially when you know he's trying to lift the fountain or when he's getting like electroshock therapy that's like his this movie definitely grants him the opportunity to as you said chew the scenery or to go all out and, and go excessively over the top because i mean who wouldn't who wouldn't be in that much pain when they're getting electrocuted through their temples you know and uh because of these kinds of scenes in this film and the fact that he can be wacky with you know a lot of the mental patients uh, it gives him more grounding when he needs the grounding because it gives him, you know, these outputs. So, you know, you look at something like a, as good as it gets. Um, he's just chewing the scenery because he's a wacky guy. Or, and I think in that film, he's got like OCD or something. But I don't think it's a good enough grounding. In this film, it makes perfect sense because he has his many opportunities to just be off the walls. And it's, and it's perfect. And it's great because in contrast to Louise Fletcher's character, you know, Nurse Ratchet. You know, you've got this completely conservative character who's very by the book. She won't waver for anything. And you've got Jack Nicholson, who's super liberal and just doesn't care. He's very free-spirited. He'll do, he'll do whatever. You know, this should change. That should change. The people, you know, it's a democratic, even though half, half the people can't even speak in that, in that institution, right? Like, everybody's out of their minds, but he still 
for the people and and let let's go off the books and do something different. You know, it's it's a very great contrast and one of the greatest contrasts in film history, I would say. Yeah, um, you know, to kind of get off topic of Jack Nicholson a little bit, I, I, I think what makes this movie work as well as it does is its supporting cast. Um, yeah. Right from the beginning, you have each of the actors who, who play patients in this facility. They all have very unique disabilities. And, you know, they're not just there because they're all crazy. You know, they, they each have different reasons for being there. And I think that is shown off uh so well and they each have their own moments of clarity as well you know the guy that's yelling has his moments of understanding the guy that has is stuttering can speak clearly the the guy who has anxiety issues is able to be confident and and i think i think structuring it that way that he's not in a loony bin he's in a a facility where people are getting help and treatment and each day they get better and better. I think that perfectly shows off how that's done. I think the best example of that is when he, uh, he sees the guys playing cards originally and, you know, a couple of them are losing focus. And one of the guys are like, come on guys, we're playing a game of cards here. Let's all focus. Come on, let's do this right. And, and I think there's some nice deft touches with the way the handling of these people with, with disabilities is done. And I, I absolutely have to applaud uh, Froman and his team for doing that. Yeah. Uh, quickly before I continue into that, I just have to say all time favorite Danny DeVito performance. Like I think this is beyond anything he's ever done. Like this is the one performance of his where he's completely transformed. And I just think like, Holy crap, this man's like, one of my favorite characters in the film, like just terrific acting. But to continue with what you were saying, I love that because with with Jack Nicholson's character uh, Grady or whatever, it, you um, you come in and or not not Grady. What's his character's name again? I gotta look this up quickly. McMurphy. While I, McMurphy. That I was thinking of The Shining. Um, <laughs> was, yeah, that's not even his name in The Shining. Anyways, McMurphy. Uh, he comes in and once you have this man who tries to break the rules you see everybody's minds just kind of twist a little bit where it's like, wait, there are these freedoms we have. And, you know, they, you see them being conflicted, like, well, no, but the book said this, but he says this. And sometimes he'll be right or sometimes he'll be wrong. Like when he brings in, you know, uh, the, the women for them to meet or whatever, that was definitely wrong. But, you know, you have, you have these men in there where it's like, okay, well, we've never experienced these freedoms before. What do we do? We're conflicted. Whereas, you know, when it comes to him voting for them to go see a ball game, which I think would have been good for maybe some of the patients, or like to put the ball game on rather um, on the TV, you see them struggling. It's like you know, we've never experienced this kind of luxury in this facility before. And this could be good for us. Can can we please enjoy this? And you see them like the the, the large amount of conflict, and as you said, the, the supporting cast acted it perfectly and. It's so hard to pull off this kind of thing, especially when you're not in your right mind to begin with. How do you convey that kind of depth and structure of conflict without it coming off as too desperate? And no, they they all did a great job. Brad Dourif, you know, Danny DeVito, the, all of them. Yeah, I think Brad Dourif is uh, is the real highlight for me playing Billy Bibbit. Um, yeah. He's a young kid who who is infatuated with this woman, this other young woman who's never seen in the movie, um, but can't 
show his affection. And at times, you know, it feels, it feels creepy and weird and off putting. But then other times it's the realization that he, he just has the inability to express how he's really feeling and you feel sorry for him and you just want to like hug him and tell him it's going to be all right. Uh, he just wants to be loved, but can't express it himself properly. And I think, Dorf gives a very nuanced, excellent performance uh, that, that's extremely memorable. You talked about DeVito where, you know, uh, unless you know it's him, you are not going to know it's him. He doesn't yeah. look how he looks now. Um, he doesn't act how he's acted in anything else. I know he does have some other memorable parts that are not It's Always Sunny in Philadelphia. Um <laughs> You know, there's the, there's the native actor who plays the chief, who I think is, who's excellent in stoicism. Uh, a couple of the other guys, Cheswick, who has this nice little, uh, manic persona. And then Christopher Lloyd is, is fascinating as well. Uh, in one of his first performances too, who seemingly has looked the same forever. <laughs> I find, uh, Christopher Lloyd's performance like, the ultimate uh, comedic relief in the film when he's like, come on, play the game. Like uh, when everybody else is going like crazy and you're about to go crazy yourself. It's, I always found Christopher Lloyd's jerk persona to be the funniest part of each scene where it's like, you know, he would utter these, these completely, um, you know, irresponsible lines where it's like, you know, you're egging people on it in an institution. That's not the right thing to do. Like you're going to, you're making it worse. Uh, uh, but I always found him the funniest part of the film myself. <laughs> yeah, I agree. Uh, one of the things that I was mentioning in French Connection was its use of uh, faraway shots um, to showcase the the voyeurism of it. I think this sort of does the exact opposite, where there is uh, numerous instances of extreme close-ups uh, showing, you know, basically just from the forehead down to the mouth. And you are so close where you're seeing every small little twitch of an eyebrow and, and blink and breath coming in through the nose that you feel like you're inside these people's heads and you can actually understand what their logic and reasoning is. Even if the moment before you're just like, oh my gosh, everyone is freaking out for no reason. What's going on? And then as soon as you get this extreme close-up, whether it's of McMurphy or of Nurse Ratchet or of one of the other patients, you understand exactly what is going on. And I think that's that's a testament to solid acting. You know, if, if you're a theater Theater actor, you know everything has to be big. You cannot show nuance. Whereas in film, you have this this ability to show nuance, to show the minor details. And most of the time, this is going to get lost unless you're specifically only watching one character in in a shot. This is showing you right up. You cannot get away from the person's face. You are going to know exactly what they're thinking. And I think that's some brilliant filmmaking. I think that's one of the reasons why Louise Fletcher's performance is as great as it is, because, you know, if this was like a 40s film, you can get only get so much from her tone of voice. But like her command of her facial expression with the most minor twitch representing something else, because she's such a stoic, stone cold kind of a person. It's perfect, and it's the kind of camera work that you definitely needed for her performance to go from a hundred percent to a thousand percent. I think 
for me, the real gut punch of the movie sort of comes with uh, the suicide of, of Billy near the end, yeah. right before, you know, the real big reveal finale of what happens to McMurphy, uh, where that sort of that's sort of the infamous, you know, gut punch, scary moment. I think I think the death of Billy is far more harder hitting because it's undeserved. Yeah. No, I definitely agree with that because uh, to go back to what I was saying, you know, it's these conflicted, um, these conflicted uh, people in the institution who are who are feeling like, okay, I don't know if I should do this or if I should do that. I'm getting all these questions I've never been given before, and you know, you hear um, his character throughout the movie kind of going on about like how you know he's lonely, he doesn't really have anybody, and. At the end of the film, he finally does, and he gets chastised for it, and that's it. He kills himself because he's got no worth, and that's that's depressing because, you know, that opens up a huge kind of worms. Like, how does one run an institution? How does one help a patient? How does one, you know, do anything to cure a person? Like, you just – it's it's still difficult now today, but um, I actually did a thesis on mental illness represented in film, and I found when Flew Over the Cuckoo's Nest to be a turning point in film where, you know, it was one of the first films to really take this kind of thing seriously while being solely based around, you know, mental institutions, not just kind of feature it as a subplot. Um, and it definitely shows because it's a question we're still asking now, like, how do we really solve something like this? And when Flew Over the Cuckoo's Nest dove right head first into this without necessarily answering it, but that's because we still don't have answers now. Mm-hmm. And that's why it's such a sad death because there's no way we, we could figure out maybe you can, I certainly can't to save this character. There just wasn't any. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, and I think, while the movie sort of paints a bit of a scary picture of mental health care, as far as the electroshock therapy, the lobot, the lobotomy, things like that. But, the idea, once it's revealed that most of these patients are here voluntarily and they can leave anytime they want, I think paints it in a much more respectable, understanding feature where, you know, mental health, the biggest issue with it is that people don't know how to ask for help or don't know where to turn for help. You have, you know, half a dozen characters who are there because they realize that they want help or because their family have, you know, given them sort of an ultimatum of you need to get the proper help and care that you need because I can't provide it for you. And when you see them in these therapy sessions, especially the group therapy sessions, what it sort of does for them and how they need to externalize what they're feeling on the inside, I think you know, paints the the mental health aspect in a, in a much brighter light, even though this movie can be very cruel at times. Yeah, I mean, it's it's definitely got a lot of heartwarming moments to it, and uh, again, it definitely sheds light on on this kind of facility, and you know, maybe maybe looks at the bad things that could happen within it or with people within it, um, but. You know, overall, it's it's a film classic for a reason because it, there's just not many films like this one in terms of not just structure and concept, but just in terms of, of nature. Like, how many films that aren't strictly genre benders like Charade or, you know, like the Cordello trilogy, uh, how many films can, you know, touch upon tragedy, drama, comedy, and, and the like just so, so well without 
forcing it to be like a genre bending film like it's you don't see that often nowadays no you don't um this is this is rightfully so won so many oscars that it did um even if louise fletcher is a bit of a conflicting character uh as far as everything else that's going around i still think it's a solid job by by both her and nicholson and Milos foreman and the script and the cinematography this is this is a movie that is firing on all cylinders uh and it is is very worthy of the praise it gets and also i think it's a it's kind of the perfect movie for people that are wanting to get into and study film one that they should be checking out and analyzing more closely yeah, absolutely. And I guess to, to wrap it up on that note, I do know that uh, Ken Casey, who wrote the original book, wasn't fond of this film because of uh, the books actually all from Chief's perspective. But in the film, like you don't know that Chief has like a, a cohesive mind at all until you know the big twist happens. Uh, but as a standalone film, because I haven't actually read the book, and I like to keep them both separate, as I usually do when I read a book and watch a film. Um, as a film, it's just wonderful, and uh, I, I don't know, like, if you haven't seen it and you're, you're a huge film student, please, you'll either see it as a terrific movie or an absolute favorite of yours. There's no other option, I think, with a film like this. Yeah, that's right. Um, so where can all of our listeners find you, Andreas? You can find me on Twitter at Andreas Bats. You can find me at DGAPA and make sure you follow at Live in Limbo uh, and check out the website where the show notes will be there in the first five rankings and also next to it, uh, the ratings that we had given them as well. Um, stay tuned for part two of this episode where we're going to count down the top five films from the late 60s, early 70s, um, Best Picture Academy Award winners. Uh, this has been a lot of fun. Um, Thank you so much uh, again to Katrina Latt for joining us and talking about her favorite films. I hope you enjoyed that as much as uh, we enjoy hearing from them too. Six feet down, a little reversal blunder.